Good morning, everybody. Welcome to 6-8. Uh, glad you're joining us this morning, and or maybe later you're going to watch this at, at a later time. That's fine as well. Uh, get your little beauty sleep there. Stay in bed. Um, anyway, but if you are new with us, we really do welcome you, and, and uh, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jason at 6-8.org, and we can have a little conversation. Uh, also, uh, if you are not getting the church emails, the informational emails, uh, please email admin at 68.org to get placed in the system, and then you'll get all the information and stuff sent to you. Um, I want to remind everybody that September 13th at 9.30 a.m. is the time that we're going to resume live services at the church. Uh, we will also still continue with live streaming uh, so uh, you guys that, that aren't comfortable yet returning to a physical space uh, can have something at home for yourselves, and that's great. Um, and we're going to keep doing that from now on. So that'll be something uh, you can you like if you're sick, you can still join in the service, you know, at home and stuff like that. Uh, anyway, I want to also say that from now and through Labor Day Sunday, uh, every Sunday we're going to have sort of a, a lunch fellowship after church thing from 1130 to two. And it's going to be at one of two homes, either my house or the Christie's house, uh, rain or shine, bring your own lunch. There's a grill available to use, uh, paper products, cups, plastic, where napkins provided, uh, feel free to bring food and drink to share with people. If you want to throw a, a lawn chair or a beach chair or a blanket in your trunk in case, uh, it might be needed, uh, you know, limiting, limited seating, you know, uh, around the, you know, the Christie's have a pool. So if you want to bring your bathing suit and um, go swimming, you can do that. And we're going to inform you every Sunday and also in the informational emails about where that will be the coming, the coming following Sunday. And so that went out this week. And today we're going to meet at the Christie's house at 1220 Wendover Road in Bryn Mawr. It's right behind, uh, <clears throat> you know, where the McDonald's is across the street from kind of across the street from our church. Um, that train station, it's right behind that train station. You should go under the train track bridge and make, make your first right. And Wendover Road is that, that's Wendover Road. And the first uh, driveway in your right is their house. 1220 Wendover Road. And if you uh, want to get that information emailed to you, just email admin at 68.org to get, you know, to get that today. Um, also, just to again, just to announce that if you're giving a reoccurring gift through Simple Bre Simple Give, which is our old giving portal for the church, please uh, go online and look at the directions on the giving page to move that over to Breeze to cancel Simple Give out and start it with Breeze. Uh, there's also other directions for text to give or Venmo or sending a check to the church, and um, you can use those things. So uh, I want to say that. Um, these ser these sermons have been sort of cerebral lately, and, and, you know, I know that's not always that much fun, but uh, it is helpful at times to really think about uh, what we believe and why we believe it and, and things like that. So I hope you can you know, man up, stay in there with, right with me. And uh, I, I was uh, writing this sermon this week, and I had finished it, and my wife was reading this book called uh, Invitation to a Journey, a Roadmap for Spiritual Formation, a book that I had read a while ago in the spiritual formation training. And she came across chapter 13, which is called Social Spirituality. And every chapter he has like a, uh, 
a prayer written out before uh, he gets into the chapter. And so I wanted to use that prayer as we open up today uh, for this sermon. So if you would bow your heads with me and just pray, uh, and I'm going to read his prayer. Uh, and and it, I think it's very meaningful. He says, O God of peoples, nations, and history, you who became incarnate in the midst of economic, social, and political injustice, you who call us to incarnate the reality of your kingdom in the midst of the world's destructive values, structures, and dynamics, we confess that we would much rather limit our relationship with you to the comfortable confines of our own insulated world. We are prone to withdraw and to create islands of security within which we can live in some degree of peace and comfort without having to see the pain and the anguish of the world outside. We are tempted to limit our spirituality to the narrow boundaries of our own self-circumscribed world. O God of justice and mercy, help us to see that to be formed in the image of Christ is to be thrust out into the world as agents of of your redeeming, healing, liberating, transforming grace. Help us to see that our our growth towards wholeness in Christ cannot move toward its fruition apart from our life in the world. Guide us in our consideration of this reality and help us to be open and responsive responsive to to what you are saying to us. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit out of that book later on, I think, as well, at the end of the service. Now, by the way, if you if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, I'm going to open up some other thoughts first. But eventually we're going to get to Matthew chapter 5, and then we're also going to be jumping over to Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to open up now to those two passages, just kind of earmark them, and, and you can read along with us when I get there. But, uh, again, the aim of these sermons, as of late, is to make clear statements from a Christian worldview concerning our current social climate and and to gain some confidence in the issues we face as believers. Um, In other words, to focus on Christ and to develop a firm foundation in Christ. And those two words, focus and foundation, have come up in our prayer times recently. The prayer team has been sharing these thoughts with me, and I, I think those are two great words that we can focus on right now. So to focus on Christ and to develop a firm foundation in Christ. So um, we have said in recent sermons that all diverse people groups of the world are created in the image of God, so we, we treat everyone with dignity and justice and fairness in humility before God. We said that the human race created in the image of God is so special that God even said in Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. And then we know that in the fifth commandment, uh, in Exodus 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder, which, you know, and I don't say this jokingly, but it seems to be an American pastime. You know, murder is just like you turn on the news and it's all over the place. So why is that? Why are we, you know, kind of becoming, I don't know, crazier, it seems like. Um, well, I think that as God is increasingly incised out of our social fabric, uh, there is a de- deceptive, nihilistic, sort of hopeless humanism that takes over mankind and it replaces God at the center as definer of morality and value and goodness and beliefs and things like that. 
And humanism, in its own right, claims to care about humanity, right? People would say that we are progressing and moving forward as we push God out of the way and we take over ourselves. But it it has as its inherent core problem uh, the deceptive hearts which govern it, right? Since you may have not, you may have noticed, I'm not sure, but people have very, very differing views as to what is good and right and moral in this world. If we don't begin from the standpoint of God as creator and definer of human value and only see the world as material, just a bunch of cells and things like that put together, then a hopelessness really takes us over over time. You know, as Nietzsche said, and he was very prophetic in this, he said, God is dead and we have killed him, right? Um, you know, when when this happens, when God is taken out of our worldview as, as he's pushed away, then civil law governing human relationships is no longer based on these inalienable rights attributed by God. And then law becomes increasingly arbitrary, changing and blowing with the winds of desire. You know, and as God's taken out of the equation, then the state, the government, then defines human value and rights, which is very fluctuating and ever-changing. It depends a lot on the loudest voices given at, at, at any given time. And if the state becomes the definer of human value and human rights, then the state can also take them away. And we've got to remember that. And we find that what becomes legal eventually is viewed as ethical. What becomes legal is eventually viewed as ethical. But not all things that are legal in our country are ethical in the the sense that they reflect the heart of God, right? Right. And it's been said that whatever isn't forbidden, or in other words, whatever is allowed, becomes compulsory in time. Let me say that twice. Whatever isn't forbidden becomes compulsory in time. So certain beliefs and values that are contradictory to a Christian worldview have been legalized in America, and they are now becoming compulsory, at least in agreement Right. And that that happens first through social pressure. You know, asking a young person if they feel pressure to post certain things on their their uh, social media pages. Right. So it, it firstly happens through social pressure and eventually it's legislated into law for punishment of noncompliance. Right. And we're starting to see that uh, in our country. Francis Schaeffer said in a prophetic talk in 1982 that Christians have been seeing in only bits and pieces they're, that they're, they're thinking that, you know, singular uh, changes in society, for instance, Roe v. Wade allowing for abortion passes, right? That's one instance, that these are just individual instances instead of really overall signs of us moving from a Christian worldview to a humanistic worldview which is really what's happening to us. For instance, the question in the medical field has always been, how can I save this life, right? That, that was the primary directive, saving a life. But it's increasingly becoming the question of, should I save this life? Should I save this life? So we're asking now questions like, when, when, when does someone have personhood? In other words, when do, are they ascribed value you know, in, in reference to children, even into the toddler years, the discussions are actually uh, being had, being made that are being had between peoples that we could abort kids even after birth. 
which is kind of crazy, you know, right? And so the life of a child is now outweighed by the desires and the perceived happiness of a mother instead of its inalienable right to exist as God's creation. So that leads to other questions at the other end of life as well as to the usefulness of the elderly. There are plenty of instances which we could point to in all these areas, and they are always couched in compassionate language, making the hopelessness of a cold humanistic worldview, which increasingly devalues life, uh, you know, or masking, I'm sorry, the hopelessness of a cold and humanistic worldview, which increasingly devalues life because it draws a line between the spiritual and the natural world, therefore seeing our world is only natural. There's no value in the spiritual anymore up there. So as we hold up the mirror of the gospel to the, to the world, it truly reflects a decaying humanity. Some people would say we're progressing, but I would say that we are decaying. Um, but as Christians, remember, we hold to a God creating the human race and endowing it with value. So we affirm the sanctity of all human life. From conception to natural death, we are fully pro-life, not simply pro-birth. We encourage godly lament and prayer and biblical advocacy and peaceful activism in the face of legal and illegal forms of injustice and murder and eugenics and genocide against any individual or ethnic people group. You know, Francis Schaeffer in that talk in 1982 asked, where are the Bible-believing Christians? Where are they? You know, why are they so quiet? Why don't we hear from them? Why aren't they leading our culture? And as this suffocating humanism takes over, we have to ask, what voice or role does the Bible-believing Christian have, right? Since, like Peter answered in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And as Jesus answered the tempter in Matthew chapter 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he also said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we serve God and not men, right? Our existence extends beyond the material, guided by the heart of God in the scriptures. Our worship centers on Jesus and not on the human spirit. Christ is at the center of our worldview, not me, not you, not humanity. Now, in light of this, that was a big opener, right? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 through 16, and this, by the way, is the salt and light passage. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen to that. 
You know, uh, we all know that Jesus promised his followers persecution due to the message that we bear, due to being identified with him. But why, right? You got to think about that. Why? Because honestly, I think you guys are great people. You're really nice, loving, caring people who only want the best for the world and your friends and your family out there. Uh, you know, our desire is only good for people, including their salvation and their reconnection with God the Father. And, and we understand why there comes persecution. At some level, we understand it. But sometimes that illogical argument of those vehemently opposed to Christ is quite confusing to us. You know, Jesus challenges people in how they live and what they value, what they believe and what they worship. And that is always a touchy uh, discussion with anyone. So bearing his words we sometimes receive the brunt of anger that is driven by an underlying fear, fear that we might actually be right and that their worldview is confronted and dismantled when they're confronted with Jesus. Because Jesus convicts and he calls for repentance and alignment in unity under him for the good of all people, right? You know, there are plenty of persecution stories, old and new. Paul's Success in Ephesus provoked a riot to defend the cult of God, the goddess Artemis. Uh, Stephen is stoned in the book of Acts. And in 64 AD, there was a fire that destroyed much of Rome. And in order to escape blame, Nero killed a vast multitude of Christians just as scapegoats, right? Blamed it all on them. Or more recently, uh, we have, you know, very recent stories. The teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a Bible to a student. The football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of a game. The fire chief in Atlanta who fired for self-publishing a book defending a Christian moral teaching. The Marine court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse just above her desk. And these are just some of the examples of the new intolerance that is leading to persecution in the Christian world right now. Christian institutions are not uh, immune to this. They face pressure to conform to secularist ideology, very much so. Gordon and King's colleges have had their accreditation questioned. Some argue that Christian schools don't deserve accreditation, period. Uh, Atheist Richard Dawkins and others have equated homeschooling tantamount to child abuse. Uh, Students groups like InterVarsity have just been kicked off of campus, campuses around the country, Christian charities, including adoption agencies, Catholic hospitals, and Christmas pregnancy centers have become objects of attack and have been forced to teach things that they don't actually agree with, too. Young life is being attacked across the board on their biblical views concerning social issues. You know, persecution, when it comes, brings out this feeling of fight or flight in us, doesn't it? We may get angry. We may want to strike back. Uh, but most of all, we tend to withdraw and go silent, don't we? Out of fear, we don't engage with people in the, in the, in the message of the gospel. But Jesus says that, uh, that neither, uh, you know, attacking or retreating is that which he calls us to. That's not the reactions that we want or he wants from us. He calls for us to engage as salt and light, no matter the cost, to our own reputation or even to our safety. That that we engage with others in love and compassion and humility, bearing the fruit of the Spirit 
but also with great confidence and boldness, right? As Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And we remember that the Gentile is all the other ethnic groups out there in the world that God has called us to reach. Schaefer's question uh, in 1982 pointed out that much of Christianity was either uh, intentionally silent or just indifferent. They were not being salt and light. He was kind of chastising them as he talked to them. If Christians are indifferent or cowardly in the face of need and our calling, we lose our saltiness, don't we? We really do. And we know that salt has two purposes. Firstly, it's to, uh, to preserve things, to hold off rot. They would pack meat in it without refrigeration. That's the only thing that can preserve it. And we still have salted meats today that people like to eat. But that originates from a time when we had to use salt to preserve things. The Christian church is like salt packed around a decaying world, holding back the rod of sin by engaging the world with the gospel, giving it all the opportunity in the world to hear the message of Christ. Secondly, salt, as we know, is a flavor enhancer. I love my salt, baby, right? It makes everything better, right? I put it on anything. I put it on watermelon and peaches even. It's crazy. It was so valuable back in that time that Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. That's where we get that phrase, he's worth his salt, right? Some of us put salt on everything, even before we taste it. My wife gets mad at me that I salt my food before I eat it because, you know, she's cooked it. And she's like, you didn't even taste it first. Maybe it's great without the salt. But I just grew up like that. And salt makes things better, right, for me. Um, Likewise, I think Christians engaging in society make it better. We do. And we've got to start thinking in this way. Stories abound over history of how Christianity not only preserved, but made society better throughout the ages. You know, for instance, Christianity was very popular among women in the early years of, for, for very good reason. And because in ancient cultures, a wife was the property of her husband. You know, Aristotle said that a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. You know, according to Tim Keller, it was an extremely common practice in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants, just to throw them on the garbage heap at the end of the street, to die from exposure because of the low status of women in society. And the church forbade its members to do that. Greco-Roman, and they actually went out and picked them up off, other people's babies, up off those trash heaps and took them in. Greco-Roman society saw no value in unmarried women. It was actually illegal for a, for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying somebody. And Christianity was the first religion to, to not force widows to remarry. And they were supported financially and honored within the community so that they were not under great pressure to remarry if they didn't want to, which makes that verse, I forget the, the reference, but that verse you know, taking care of orphans and widows, much more powerful and enlightened when you think about that. You know, pagan widows lost all control of their husband's estate when they remarried, but the church allowed widows to maintain their husband's estate. 
Christians didn't believe, and by the way, we still don't, in cohabitation before marriage. Um, if a Christian man wanted to live with a woman, he had to marry her, and this gave women far greater security. Also, the pagan double standard of allow, allowing married men to have extramarital sex and mistresses was absolutely forbidden in the church, as it is now. Uh, and, and in all these ways, Christian women enjoyed far greater security and equality than did women in the surrounding culture. You know, in India, wit- widows were voluntarily or involuntarily burned on their husbands' funeral pyres. Christian missionaries were a major influence in stopping these century-old practices and ideas. You know, Christian blessing didn't stop there either. It extends into every niche of society, human rights and children and slavery and the ending of the gladiator spectacles and cannibalism and tribes and, you know, bettering families and marriages and education and, and the government of people. We've had a lot to say in these things. And we could relay stories for days on end of Christianity's betterment in societies. It's very popular right now to criticize the church, and I think that's revisionist history. You know, we don't, we're not perfect. The church is not always perfect, and, but we're very honest that we're not perfect. But, but people are forgetting and misunderstanding how great the church has, has blessed the world. You know, before Christ, we find little trace of any organized charitable effort in history. Jesus preached this, and Christians answered his call in building hospitals and orphanages and schools and soup kitchens and thrift shops and ending slavery and sex trafficking and all that, and we still are. And there's a great quote I should have looked up for this sermon about, you know, one Roman leader that says the Christians just do so much, and they were kind of ashamed because they weren't doing anything. You know, I'd love to take you all uh, over and to see the ministry, our ministry partners in the Middle East and, and, and that the work that they do, of which we support financially and prayerfully. And they are very busy right now in light of that recent explosion in Beirut. And if you'd like to give to that, you can email me and I'll, I'll tell you how to do that. But our own culture's powerful emphasis on compassion sprouts up from Christian roots. What would the world be? Think about this. What would the world be like if Christianity had, or Christ had never come? I think we may have killed each other off by now. We are definitely the salt of the earth. You know, one author said, excuse me, Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized and for the way we currently live. So extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, economics, politics, arts, calendar, and holidays, and our moral and cultural priorities that one history writes, we could none of us today be what we are if a handful of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago had not believed that they had known a great teacher, seen him crucified, seen him die, and seen him be buried, and then rise again. You know, have you ever bought a new car and you're so excited about it for a couple of weeks or a couple of months even maybe, but then your excitement starts to wane over time? And that's because familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity just breeds this blahness about things, right? The more familiar we become with something, the less excited we are about it. And we grow very unappreciative of our blessings. That's why we need to count our blessings every day. 
And so we take these stories and the teaching of Scripture for granted, and our Bible stays on the bookshelf instead of open and read every day. We say, I just can't get into the Word, so dry to me right now. But we fail to recognize that not everyone always had these words of life, and that their lives, when they did get them, have been bettered drastically as a result of them. Hearts have been transformed, which has transformed the world, preserving it and making it a better place for everyone. And likewise, we take all the blessings we have for granted, right? If, if, if What if the scriptures were never penned? Or what if they were taken away from us? I urge you to fall in love with the word of God again. Ingest it. Take it in every single day. Allow it to transform your heart and your mind and your soul and all the practices of your life. You know, Ephesians 5, 8 through 16, Paul speaks of us as light in that passage as well. And he says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Isn't that great? Or light in the, in the Lord. Live as children of light. In other words, that's a choice. That's a conscious choice I make. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Like, Search it out, right? Search it out in the scriptures. Search it out in prayer. Have nothing to do, verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Verse 13, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Think about that. Illuminated, it reflects the light of Christ, right? This is why it is said, uh, this is verse 14, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then uh, these, this is a great ending. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, you may think that that's a negative way of looking at things, that the days are evil, but scripturally it is true. Then the, re- the wise regard them as such. That doesn't mean that everything's terrible. It just means that there is an evilness that per- pervades our reality. It's not a despairing state sentiment. It's, it's, rather, it's very hopeful because it spurs us on to be salt and light until the, the hope of the, of the returning of Christ, right? And those all stand as prophetic words to every generation of Christian growing up indifferent to the life and the words of Christ. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen to that, right? But we also take light for granted, don't we, in this world, in this American affluence that we live in. You know, we really do take light for granted. Spend a week in a village in any third world country and you begin to have a very deep appreciation of light. You know, the nights that I spent out in villages in uh, Indonesia, I spent time uh, out there, you know, mosquito infested villages. You know, they were often lit. The houses were often lit by one tiny I, maybe 10 watt bulb, like just for the whole house or, or just a candle. Many places just had a little bitty candle that they lit the whole house with. Light was a precious commodity in those places. You know, Jesus claimed, as we know, to be the light of the world. We, we studied that in our last sermon series in John, but he's passed that torch on to us. Have you thought about that? 
Because in Christ, we become his light to the world as his unified body entrusted with the very words of life. We don't take our life off into the corner by ourselves, you know, hoarding hoarding it someplace. Or we don't hide under the bed with it or in a closet with it, retreating from the world due to some difficulty in expressing this gospel message and expressing Jesus to other people. Rather, we put it up a high on a stand to illuminate everyone in the room. Because this light is not for me, but for everyone around me, beginning in my home and extending out into the world from there. You know, sometimes it's easier to be a light at church with your Christian friends than it is at work or even at home. And maybe you need to make some changes. Maybe you need to start deciding to be light and salt to the people around you. You know, what if a father, you know, around the dinner table one night said to his family, you know, I got to apologize. I've really not been living as a child of light, a a light of Christ to you. Can you forgive me? And I want to make some changes. Do you think those children and his wife are going to respect him more or less? Definitely they're going to respect him more. If if at work you stand for some virtuous biblical principle, you do risk persecution. You might even be risking your career. But your being light is much more important than your career. And who knows how it's going to be received. Even if it seems like it's received badly, I guarantee you light has been shined and somebody in there is thinking. So put your light up high, not under a basket. When Jesus spoke these words, understand that it's believed that he was pointing to a city called Safed in the distance. It's the highest city in Galilee and Israel. It's 3,000 feet in elevation. You can see it from all around. And as he pointed to it, illuminated at night maybe, it was a powerful image. A city as a directional marker for all the travelers around it, drawing them to itself, recognizing the or recognizable, the, the pinnacle, the, the highest you could go, an oasis, a safe place for commerce and fellowship with others. And that's what Jesus wants for his church to be, a recognizable city on a hill, giving light and direction to all peoples. You know, traditional lights in a home, you probably know this, but they were little tiny oil lamps, you know, with some oil and a wick. And one by itself gave only a, off only a small amount of light, right? But in a dark house without ambient light from cities and street lights like we have today, it was highly valued, right? It's the only thing you could see anything with. You may be the only light a person sees in their darkness, But one light exposes the things which hold back the warmth and the truth of Christ in someone's life. Think about that. Think about a person locked away in a dark room or or a bunch of people locked away in a dark room. They're just feeling around. They, they They think that this is their reality. And then somebody comes in with a lantern and they suddenly can see. That that sight might hurt a little bit at first, like, oh, But as their eyes adjust and they start to see the contours of the other people around them and the faces and the smiles and the the bright eyes and all that stuff, that is a big difference. And that's what you are to Christ or to people in Christ as you walk into their lives. Now, imagine placing 100 lamps all around a room at varying heights, right? 
It's illuminating much more strongly, right? That's what someone sees when they get around the powerful United Church of Christ and to watch, and, and, and that is to which we're, that, that's what we are also called to, to be. It's not just singular lights in the world, but a, a group of lights to the world making one big, large, uh, illuminated thing. Uh, we're not strobe lights go on and on and off. You ever been in like a dance hall, you know, like, like a, a club or something like that. And they got a strobe light going. It's annoying. It like gives you a headache after a while. That's not what we are. We're not on and off, on and off, on and off. We don't even have an off switch. We're not on a dimmer switch growing fainter when trials come our way. We are the reliable, consistent light of a burning warm flame of Jesus to the world around us. Now, notice, I want you to notice very carefully, Jesus doesn't say here, if you do all the right things, then you will be salt and light. He doesn't say that at all. He declares you in him to be salt and light already. That as soon as you accept Christ, as soon as you, uh, you, you receive the Holy Spirit in your life, you become salt and light. Being salt and light isn't how we gain salvation. It's how we live in Christ to peoples around us because of salvation, due to his life in Christ, uh, life in us already. Neither of these passages, Matthew 5 or Ephesians 5, speaks at all about how to become a Christian. They call the Christian who's already saved by grace through faith in Christ to live the life and words of Jesus out to the world. So how can, lo- how can salt lose its saltiness? You ever think about that? It really can't. Salt is salt is salt, right? You're salt and light because you are in Jesus alone. But, but your salt and your light can go unused. Meals can be bland and meat can rot without it if it's not sprinkled out on things. But if it's used, it preserves and it makes all things better. You got to understand that. But to live in obedience to Jesus takes risk and intentionality, wisely making the most of every opportunity that it comes before us. Indifference and fear are our enemies in this. Indifference and fear. We need to focus on Jesus, allowing him to build a solid foundation in him and in our families and in our church, and that as that overflows to the rest of the world, Romans 15, 13, right? You know, your personal light may be one small flame in a dark world, but it is a light illuminating and exposing those things which would normally hold back the blessings of the kingdom of God. And placed alongside lights of all the other believers in the unity of Jesus, that influence is made exponentially brighter and more influential. So be salt and light in Christ. Choose that today. Use your salt to flavor and preserve lives around you. Take the basket off your light and put it up on a stand for all to see. Don't succumb to indifference or fear. Perfect love drives out all fear. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then we will all be like that city Safed to the world. You know, we think hard right now about how we speak into the lives of others when our message right now is sort of unpopular. 
and it doesn't really fit the cultural narrative out there. Considering how we love people well in justice and fairness and humility, valuing all of them as the creation of God. We think hard about these things. I, I've had many discussions over the, over the past months and especially the past weeks about how we do this with people. And so I want to say that, yes, this has implicated Christ has implications in all areas of your life, beginning in your home, beginning in your church, work, politics, justice, our neighbors, and the work we've chosen to do through our cross-cultural mission efforts. It's about God's glory, and it's about God's mission. So be Jesus. Preach his whole message, no matter the cost. Live as the wise. Think. Make the most of every opportunity. I want to end, and I know this might be a little lengthy, but I, I want to end with reading just a couple paragraphs from this book, Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. Um, and it's called, uh, this passage is called The Life in, Life in New Jerusalem. In other words, life in Christ. And then he also refers to fallen Babylon, uh, the world without Christ, right? So it says, social spirituality is rooted in the integrity of our life together as citizens of a new Jerusalem. If we don't have a corporate spirituality, now remember, we've been talking about unity in all these sermons. If it's not implicit, it's, it's very much about unity all the way through these things. So he says, if we don't have corporate spirituality of accountability to one another for our pilgrimage toward holiness, wholeness in the image of Christ, we are going to be subverted by the values and the perspectives of the fallen world around us as a church will fall captive to the culture. So if we don't pursue, pursue unity in Christ, we get one by one, we get picked off and drug away. And he continues. Now, this does not mean that the church sets itself against the culture. The church is not called primarily to be con- confrontive, but to be obedient and faithful to God's presence and purposes in the culture. Remember, Paul said we, mar- we must obey God and not men. The result will be confrontive, but that should not be the purpose. Our purpose should be to live out of the values and the dynamics of New Jerusalem in the midst of the values and the dynamics of fallen Babylon. When we do this, fallen Babylon is going to be disturbed. Fallen Babylon will not appreciate the bringing to light of its value system. Yet the confrontation comes not because we seek it, but because falsehood cannot stand in the presence of truth. This is why there can be no true true social holiness without personal holiness. Personal holiness comes as a result of the spiritual journey that, that he's described in this book, he says. The deep commitment of our beings to God, the growing life of responsive relationship with God, the increasing work of God's transforming grace in our brokenness and bondage all lead us towards the wholeness of conformity to Christ. Such personal holiness, however, is conformity to one whose life was given unconditionally for others. Such personal holiness is nurtured in a corporate community of faith. Without the nurturing growth and accountability of the community of faith, we will never have the clarity of discernment that will enable us to walk in Christ's way in the midst of a world that would try to bend us out of the way. 
Corporate spirituality is the only hope for genuine social spirituality. Conversely, corporate spirituality will wither on the vine if it does not reach out to the world. A corporate spirituality that insulates and protects us from the world is close to death. In other words, worship Jesus alone, serve God and not men, and become salt and light in Christ. Own who you are in Jesus and walk this out together in unity. That was a fun sermon to preach, I'll tell you right now. A little long, sorry, but let me pray us out of this. Father God, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords over the universe, that over every little blade of grass and grain of sand and leaf on a tree, uh, that you are sovereign king, and that includes our hearts and our personhood and who we are and the value we have in light of you. And we know that you have called us, you've gifted us, you've blessed us with Holy Spirit. You've blessed us with the very words from your mouth in, in written form and also in a connection of prayer. And we ask, Lord Jesus, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your presence, that you would push out of us anything that would hold back the kingdom of God in our ministry towards others. We pray that you would convict us of being the salt and the light of Christ to all those people around us, that we would let it shine and that we would not be afraid and that we would not be indifferent to it. We love you. May this be in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you can certainly stay on and chat. I'll, uh, Tune out now, though, and uh, God bless you guys. And remember, uh, Christie's house today, 1130, if you want to come on over and have some fellowship. Amen? All right. Amen. I'll see you guys.